It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. While there are many people who have had an influence on modern Las Vegas, one in particular stands out, and that is Howard Hughes. My guest is Jeff Schumacher. He's author of Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue. It's revised and expanded and published by University of Nevada Press, and it's available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Jeff Schumacher, go to jeffschumacher.com and follow him on Twitter at Jeff Schumacher. And Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, your original book came out a while ago, and this is now the revised version. And I wanted to talk to you about the amount of work that goes into a revision, because you clearly added a lot of new material. Why did you decide to do that? And, and then we'll get into the story of Howard Hughes, but why did you decide to do a revised and expanded version? Right. Well, that's a, there's two, two answers to your question. The first one is the original edition of the book came out in 2008, and it was published by Stevens Press. And Stevens Press later went out of business in 2014. And at that point, the rights to the book reverted back to me. So at that point, the book was out of print. And I really did not want that to be the case. So I was able to secure an agreement with University of Nevada Press to pick up the book, and which it was great of them to do that, and, and somewhat unusual for them. But I agreed that I would well, I very much wanted to revise and expand the book because so much I had learned so much more about Hughes since the first edition was published. And so I had this opportunity. I jumped at it. And ultimately, my second answer is the second book is a more comprehensive look at Howard Hughes's life. So the first edition focuses very intensely on his years in Las Vegas. And that's still the heart of the book today. But when that book came out in 2008, a lot of people told me, hey, I really liked your book, but it didn't tell me much about his aviation career or it didn't tell me much about his Hollywood career. And I really just wanted to read one book that would answer all these questions. Most people don't want to read eight biographies of Howard Hughes like I did. <laughs> so so uh, I understand that. So the second edition, I've added about 28,000 words. So the first edition was about 100,000 words. This one's about 128,000, so it's, it's bigger, it's expanded, but I've also revised, so there's five new chapters, for example, but I've also updated all the other chapters, and things develop, you know, people pass away, new information comes to light, new court documents come, you know, uh, are revealed, these kinds of things that allowed me to really bring this book up to the current day and also give a fuller picture of Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes is interesting because you just alluded to it. I can use the analogy of World War II. We continue to find out new information about World War II. Every time we think we know everything, something new comes up. And sure. it's the same with Howard Hughes. That it never. I have your original version of the book, A Power of Paranoia and Palace Intrigue, and I remember when that came out, and it talked about the Las Vegas years, but he's such a major figure, not just for Las Vegas, but really globally in terms of his mm -hmm. influence. Well, you know, I mean, things come to light. Like just recently, there was an auction of Howard Hughes memorabilia, and included in that memorabilia were letters that were written to him by Catherine Hepburn. 
And it was like, okay, so people have not been seeing these letters. I haven't seen them, and I, you know, I didn't bid on them. They were very expensive. But the point is, now potentially we know there's some more information about their relationship that we didn't know before. And there are lots of things like that that come to light later. Sometimes things are dug out of museums, university archives, different places where you know you just don't realize that there's this whole other treasure trove of material. He was involved in so many different things and with so many different people and with so many different companies that you know you're bound to get something new almost every day. What's interesting too, you mentioned the auction. I'm wondering whether you as a historian and writer would contact whoever won the bid and ask if you could at least get a scan of the letters. Yes, that would be, I would like to do that. Typically, auction houses do not reveal the winners of auctions. Unfortunately, that was the case here. So my hope would be that they might see my book and go, oh, this person, the writer of this book might be very interested in seeing these letters. I would hope that kind of communication might be forthcoming, but we'll see. Yeah, you could at least write them a letter at the auction house and see if you can get it forward to the highest bidder, so to speak. When you were putting the new material together, were there any new people that you interviewed for the revised edition of this book? A few. Unfortunately, some of the key people that I, whom I talked to for the first edition, Bob Mayhew, for example, and a few other people who actually knew Hughes and actually had spoken with him or worked with him, they passed away after the first edition was published. I was very fortunate to be able to talk to some of those individuals, but I wasn't able to go back to them later. <laughs> right. Because, yeah. you know, Mayhew passed away, I think, about four or five months after the book came out. And, uh, boy, I would love today, knowing what I know today, I would love to go back and talk to him some more, even though I did, I did talk to him a lot for the first edition. One thing I did was, as a, a local man, a Las Vegas man named Paul Wynn, W-I-N-N, who has his, his own chapter in the first edition, And for the second edition, I interviewed him some more and Doug some more. He was a guy who worked for Hughes for many years and who was in a sort of a high-level secretarial position. So he saw everything that was happening. He he was a very meticulous record keeper, and so he kind of remember and a great memory. And so he is able to remember so many things with great specificity. And so I went back and I mined his brain some more, and so we'll find that his chapter is longer and that he's contributed to other chapters as well. So I was able to do that. I also was able to find some more stories, you know, that helped to build upon the story of Howard Hughes. So I'll give you an example. This was pretty, this was, this was probably five, six years ago, but I was in Iowa and I made a pilgrimage to Keokuk, Iowa, which is on the Mississippi River. And this is where, you know, nobody talks about, everybody thinks about Howard Hughes, they think about Texas, because that's where he was born, and that's where he was raised. But the Hughes family is from Iowa, and so his father grew up in Iowa, and his grandfather was the mayor of Keokuk, Iowa. And I was able to go back to Keokuk, and I found the, the home where, you know, his parent, grandparents lived, where his dad grew up. I was able to find a lot of these key sites in that area, and I came across, not only that, a locally written pamphlet written by a local historian in which he dug as deeply as he could into the Hughes family history in Iowa, and man, that was helpful. That helped me to really paint a better picture of the Hughes family and the context of who he was and 
and where he came from. Did the town library have any additional material for you? Well, I did not have a chance to dig deeper. I was there on a kind of a weekend foray from my work, but I did talk to people who were living in the house where his father grew up, and they had some legends that they shared, and this pamphlet that was made available, that person had dug into the records. Now, if I wanted to do a biography or an article about his grandfather, then I could go back and do that. I don't think there was a whole lot about Howard himself. You know, he was just a kid who would visit occasionally in the summer. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot about him in the local history archives. But if one wanted to dig deeply into his family, you would have to go back there. I'm curious about your technique. When you interview some of the people, are you taking notes or are you recording or are you doing both? I'm doing both. Definitely recording because for the purposes of, uh, I was a, as you may, as you know, I was a newspaper man for many years. And right. so, you know, the first draft of history, uh, at least when I was coming up, you would take a notepad and you would take notes very as quickly as possible. And what you would come back with typically, and, and you would see this in the way news reports were, were done back in the way back in the 80s and 90s, <laughs> uh, you would see, you know, very short quotes because reporters were not able to digest and write down entire long quotes in real time. And then you had the advent of these tiny recorders and tape recorders and then digital recorders. And some reporters picked up on that quicker than others. Fortunately for, the, uh, for this book, all the interviews that I've done, I've done with a tape recorder or a digital recorder. And man, it just gives the richness of the voice of the person speaking. So you can, you can let them talk in sentences and paragraphs if you need to to just really reflect the flavor of that person talking and telling a story. So for me, I always take notes as a backup, but uh, the recording is, is essential. And it's also good in case someone denies saying something to you <laughs> as well. That is true. That and is I, true. And I'm sure in your long career that has happened once or twice. <laughs> it has. Uh, I, and I think the way, you know, again, the way newspaper people in particular were able to uh, – avoid those kinds of accusations in the past was that they only quoted people very briefly. Right. So they were able to take down that, that sentence or that snippet accurately. Whereas, you know, if you tried to, to you know, do a verbatim of an entire interview by handwriting, it just doesn't work. Yeah, unless you know shorthand, which is a whole other yes. thing. How did you develop an interest in Howard Hughes originally? Well, I, the, I started in this, this history game, if you will, by writing a book called Sun, Sin, and Suburbia, The History of Modern Las Vegas. And that, that Sun, Sin, and Suburbia book has gone through uh, two editions as well. Right. Uh, the first edition of that came out in 2004, and it's a history of Las Vegas really from the 1940s to the present. And, and that book, uh, my goal there was to try to capture, you know, sort of the history and the making of Las Vegas that people were, who were alive would remember and try to tell them some stories that they didn't know uh, or they didn't remember. And, and, and so I did that, and, and there was a chapter in that book about Howard Hughes, because you can't avoid modern Las Vegas history without talking about, you can't write about modern Las Vegas history without talking about Howard Hughes. And so when I was in the hunt for a second book, for an idea for a second book, I thought, huh, I wrote an entire chapter about Howard Hughes, and I felt like I was just breaking the surface. Why don't I delve into an entire book about him? And so, and so that was the genesis of the book. Now, in terms of my interest in him personally, what's interesting about Hughes is I think I'm drawn to his 
you know, his idiosyncrasies. I'm drawn to his entrepreneurial spirit. I'm drawn to, you know, his, his, just his total focus when it came to something he wanted to accomplish. I'm also repelled by some problems with him. And, you know, he was, a, he was an extremely difficult person to deal with many times, and he did not work well with others at other times. And in my research and other people's research, it's pretty clear that he was an unreconstructed, old-school, you know, uh, Jim Crow advocate. You know, I mean, he was, he was not, he did not see, you know, African Americans as, you know, equal to white Americans. And it was definitely a problem that I, I can't overlook. He also appeared had some degree of anti-Semitism to him as well. And these are, these are not good attributes, obviously. But, you know, when you're writing a biography, you, know, you want to write a warts and all kind of uh, portrayal. And, you know, he's had a lot of influence in Las Vegas. He had a lot of influence in America. And a uh, and, and pretty darn interesting guy, you know, again, with these flaws. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a break. My guest, Jeff Schumacher, is author of Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue, Revised and Expanded. The book is published by University of Nevada Press, available on Amazon and all the usual places. And for everything about Jeff Schumacher, go to jeffschumacher.com. That's S-C-H-U-M-A-C-H-E-R, jeffschumacher.com, and follow him on Twitter at Jeff Schumacher. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. You've seen mobsters and cops face off on the big screen. You've heard the legends of Al Capone and Elliot Ness. But how much do you know about what really happened? Dive into the true stories behind the myths of organized crime and law enforcement at the Mob Museum, the country's finest collection of mob artifacts, history, and interactive exhibits. Find out more and get tickets at themobmuseum.org. Now, let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Jeff Schumacher. He's author of Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue, revised and expanded. The book is published by University of Nevada Press and available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Jeff Schumacher, go to jeffschumacher.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Schumacher. And Jeff, Howard Hughes had so much influence on Las Vegas. Who had the most influence on Howard Hughes from your point of view, your research? You know, that's a, that's a question I haven't been asked before, but it, uh, I like it. Um, the, uh, his father, there's, there's absolutely no question that Howard Hughes was greatly influenced by the success of his father and the driven nature of his father. Now, of course, you know, Hughes' parents died when he was, a te- he was still a teenager, but he saw his father, he witnessed his father build Hughes Tool Company from nothing to, you know, considerable wealth. And uh, and I think uh, it was an entrepreneurial effort, and that's been the the trademark of Howard Hughes, you know, his whole life. And also, uh, he kind of did it on his own. Howard Hughes Sr., he did have a partner that he he got along fairly well with, but he was definitely, uh, uh, you know, someone who was driven by his own motivations, and he didn't have the greater good, (laughs) definitely, you know, front and center. He was he wanted to make money and he wanted to uh to be successful in his business and so I think Howard was greatly influenced by 
his father. I also think he he would he would probably, if you were to ask him with, uh, on his deathbed if this were true, he might deny it. But I think Howard Hughes was also considerably influenced by his uncle, his uncle Rupert, who was in his day one of the most successful and popular, well-known characters in Hollywood. He was a novelist. He was a playwright. He was a screenwriter. He was a director. He was a historian. He wrote out a three-volume biography of George Washington that is still considered to be a very important contribution to the study of our first president. So Rupert Hughes uh, was, was someone who was able to help Howard get into the Hollywood world and who gave an example for Howard of what you might be able to do in, uh, in Hollywood with movies. And uh, so I, I would have to say his, his father and his uncle are the two biggest influences. And then beyond that, his interest in aviation, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, well, Howard was influenced by this person. I think he immediately wanted to be the best person, the most important person in aviation, and um, did not necessarily see himself, even in the early days, as being behind anyone else even like Charles Lindbergh. I think he really wanted to be, to rival Charles Lindbergh. And in, in some ways he did later on. Corollary question would be, in addition to the people who had the most influence on Howard Hughes, who did Howard Hughes listen to? Perhaps for advice, perhaps for suggestions, perhaps for a way of thinking about a particular project or problem. There's two ways to, two ways to answer that. One, the first answer is, he didn't listen to that many people. <laughs> I think he, he, uh, he definitely had his own way of doing things, and, and he was not easily influenced, especially in matters of business. He, he felt like he had the best, though he was the wisest man in the room most of the time, um, and often he was. But in terms of listening to people, he always had kind of a right-hand man who was someone who could kind of keep him in check. By that I mean Howard might have a, an idea that would have cost a ton of money and have caused more harm than good. And, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people like that do have these ideas, and they kind of need somebody to kind of tone them down or say, hey, maybe you should focus on this instead of that. And early on, Hughes became attached with Noah Dietrich. And Noah Dietrich was his like, top executive for, for decades, from the late 20s to the late 50s. And Noah Dietrich also was really important because he was focused on making money and making lots of money. And Hughes was interested in spending money. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Hughes ultimately wanted money to spend. He understood the concept that you have to make money to spend it. But he, he needed Noah Dietrich to keep things on track while he was focused on flying around the world or, you know, some, or making a, some kind of a movie with Jane Russell or whatever it might be. And so Noah Dietrich was very important to him. And then kind of Noah Dietrich's successor in that, in that position would be Bob Mayhew. And it was Mayhew who navigated Nevada for Howard Hughes. He was the one who worked with the governor, Paul Laxalt, to get Hughes the licenses he needed. He was the person who negotiated, was like the key negotiator in buying all the hotels on the Strip. He was the person who who kind of made things work for Hughes. And so I think Hughes did listen to Mayhew, and he respected uh, Mayhew, and he respected Dietrich up, up till the end when Dietrich was, 
expecting to get more money out of this deal, and uh, Hughes didn't appreciate that. <laughs> the, other way, the other way I want to answer, yeah. the other way I'd like to answer this is to say Hughes definitely listened to scientists. Hughes was someone, when I say scientists, I probably should say engineers in most cases. Um, when he was building and developing airplanes in the 1930s and 40s, Hughes liked nothing more than to sit down with the engineers and talk through the problems and how to solve the problems related to building an airplane. And he had tremendous respect for that kind of person, a person with that kind of technical knowledge and, and with, some little, with some creativity built into it. Those were his, probably his favorite people in the world, were people who you know, he could truly learn from. You know, because of his power and influence and money, there weren't a lot of limitations on Howard Hughes. From an institutional point of view, would you say the federal government was the one entity that could put a few breaks on him? I guess the answer is yes. He, you know, as he famously, after World War II, uh, was uh, brought before a Senate committee to answer to charges that, you know, that his flying boat, uh, you know, the Hercules, or, uh, you know, as it became known in the, in the press, the Spruce Goose, was some kind of a wasteful government spending situation during the war and that Hughes was somehow, you know, enriching himself on the government's dole. Well, Hughes, Hughes went to the Senate uh, floor in 1947, the Senate hearing, and he answered all those questions, and he actually threw everything back on these senators, and he won the day. There's almost no question. I think I universally agreed that Howard outwitted these senators and that he, by, he was by far the most uh, convincing person in the room about the fact that he was absolutely focused on building this airplane uh, and that it would benefit humanity to do it and, and it would have been a benefit of the war if the war had continued. So, so yes, there were political challenges, that, uh, political obstacles that he faced. Uh, for example, another one, you know, Hughes wanted to stop atomic testing in Nevada, above-ground testing. And, uh, you know, he was concerned about radiation, and he was kind of ahead of his time there. And uh, he really wanted to stop them, and he wanted politicians to, he wanted to convince politicians to stop this testing. And uh, he was not successful in stopping the testing. Uh, he uh, went so far as to suggest a, a huge campaign contribution to President Lyndon Johnson, uh, and Bob Mayhew never actually delivered this contribution, which some people might call a bribe, because he wanted to stop testing. He thought only the president could, could do that. I don't think Lyndon Johnson would have either accepted the bribe or done what he was wanted him to do. At the time, we were in the middle of the Cold War, and that certainly took precedence over one, you know, one uh, millionaire's or billionaire's uh, uh, personal views. But so yes, I would. I think you're right. I think the IRS was constantly a thorn in his side, at least from his perspective. He didn't like paying taxes, and so he, like many other people in that level of income. Uh, look for ways to avoid paying taxes. And so that was another way the government is kind of a thorn in his side. And he also had to sell TWA at one point. Well, so that's an interesting thing that I, I clarify in the book. I think there, you will, if you search around on the Internet, you will, you will be given the impression that Hughes was forced to sell his shares in TWA. That is not actually true. There was never a judge or a jury that ever ordered him to sell his shares in TWA. And in fact, he resisted 
calls for him to do that. You know, the other shareholders wanted him to do it. The executives at TWA wanted him to sell his shares. He waited and he fought them and he ended up selling them at such a higher rate per share than they were worth five years before when the battle started that that enabled him, that money enabled him to uh, buy all the casinos and the land and everything in Las Vegas. I thought so, the reason he sold it, though, was he didn't want to appear before another committee. He was hearing. certainly concerned about that. He right. was concerned about, uh, he, by that time, he had become very reclusive, and he you know, didn't want to be uh, forced to appear in court. He was worried about that. But he could have gone to another country. He could have avoided, you know, a subpoena, that kind of thing. And right. uh, it wasn't that he was forced to sell, but it was very, in his part, wise to sell when he did in 1965 because he ended up making so much money that he was able to finance everything that he wanted to do after. What do you think his legacy for Las Vegas is? I think his his legacy for Las Vegas is something that he would never have envisioned himself. And that is uh, the, the land uh, west of Las Vegas that ultimately became the master plan community of Summerlin. And, and uh, Summerlin is one of the largest you know, planned communities in the country, and it has been integral in the growth of Las Vegas over the last 30 years. Now, when Hughes bought that land, he acquired that land in a trade with the government, federal government, in 1953. And his, it was 25,000 acres, and by that, at that time, Las Vegas was so small that it was in the foothills of Red Rock Canyon, but it was way out of town, like it was nowhere near the, the civilized city here. And, and so he wanted to use it to build Hughes Air, uh, move Hughes Aircraft Company from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. And the problem with that was that the executives at Hughes Aircraft and the engineers thought, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> we do not want to move to Las Vegas. Remember, Las Vegas was very small at that time. And they needed the, the and Los Angeles had become the hub of that kind of engineering, aviation engineering. And, uh, and Hughes Aircraft was in the forefront of that. The last thing they wanted to do was relocate to Las Vegas, where it would be hard to be a brain drain. You know, all kinds of other amenities would not be available to them. So they fought back very hard against Hughes and said, we do not want to move to Las Vegas. Well, now he's got 25,000 acres he's sitting on in Las Vegas and, and nowhere, nothing to do with it. So he held on to it. That was the wisdom of Howard Hughes. Is he held on to it. After he died, his heirs, with the executor being his cousin, Will Lummis, made the decision in the early 80s that they would turn that 25,000 acres into the plant community that we see today with like 120,000 people living in it. It's a small city. And, uh, and uh, so I think Hughes never would have thought about building houses and, and you know, and schools and churches and, you know, uh, shopping centers and all of the things that are in Summerlin today. He would have never thought about those things or cared about those things. But ultimately his heirs very wisely put that land to good use. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Jeff Schumacher. He's author of Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue, revised and expanded. The book is published by University of Nevada Press and available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Jeff Schumacher, go to Jeff Schumacher, that's S-C-H-U-M-A-C-H-E-R, jeffschumacher.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at 
Jeff Schumacher. Jeff, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Be Las Vegas.